you're standing over the body of a woman who's being murdered. She's being killed for loan sharking at a casino by organized crime mobsters. This is the price of blood. This is the thing that few people ever talk about when discussing money laundering. You know, the usual barking guff of expensive defense lawyers and their trained seals in the media, how financial crimes are victimless, administrative misdemeanors. Today on Crime Waves, we're going to examine how the bloody trail of cash linked to Mexican drug cartels and corrupt Chinese communist officials was laundered through Canadian casinos. It was a process that went on for over a decade. A lot of people knew about it, but no one did anything to stop it. Welcome to Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crime Waves. I'm Declan Hill, an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven. And each week, myself and my students, and today it's Ryan Decker and Aidan Van Battenberg, we bring you an interview that reveals the inside world of crime. And this week, we have an expert on money laundering, Peter German, the former deputy commissioner of the Mounties, that's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, German produced two reports entitled Dirty Money, which revealed the depth of money laundering in the casino industry in Vancouver, Canada. Good morning, Peter. It's a fantastic privilege and honor to have you here on the program. Thank you for joining us on Crime Ways. Most welcome, Declan. It's a pleasure to be here. Look, let's just kick off. Let's just get right into this. There is a crime scene that you visited a number of years ago that really gives a, a the price of blood around money laundering and casinos. Tell us what you saw at that crime scene. Right. I was an op the operations officer for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in a community called Richmond, which is the site of Vancouver, uh, Canada's international airport. And for those that aren't familiar, Vancouver is the West Coast city in Canada, right on the uh, Pacific Ocean. Um, and uh, Richmond is a vibrant a uh, suburb community of uh, Vancouver, uh, ethnically diverse, uh, casinos and uh, all sorts of things going on there. A, a large Asian uh, population diaspora. And yes, one day um, we, we like every uh, community had our uh, violent crime from time to time. And I, I recall standing essentially over a body of a female Asian woman who had been murdered. And uh, we learned that she was what is referred to as a loan shark. And that was probably the first time uh, it really came home to me that uh, hanging around a casino and doing things other than gambling can be dangerous. Uh, she obviously uh, suffered uh, uh, as a result. But what, did, what was the backstory? What was she doing as a loan shark uh, at the Right. It's many years ago now, so her own story is, is almost lost on me. But uh, what loan sharks were doing back in those days is um, uh, providing money to gamblers uh, right on the floor of a casino. So if a gambler ran out of money, uh, lost their money essentially to the house, uh, they needed 
additional resources. And this is well not needed. They want they're so addicted to gambling that they turn to these people. Right. And by the way, we want to make sure these guys aren't connected with the casino. They're just wandering around That's loaning people cash. Right, right. And these were early days for casinos in Canada. Uh, of course, Vegas and Reno and Macau had uh, casinos for many years, but these were early days uh, for Vancouver and Canada. Uh, they, they were not what they are today. They were small operations. They didn't have ATM money machines and all sorts of credit granting facilities, that sort of thing. So back in the day, you ran out of money, you had to leave unless someone could supply you with money. And unfortunately, over time, uh, groups uh, entered the casinos uh, who did this uh, for a profit. And uh, as we will uh, no doubt talk about it in, in our little discussion here, uh, eventually organized crime got involved. So organized crime, and the woman was working as a loan shark, so that she was lending money to gambling addicted Correct. people on that floor, had run out of the money. Correct. She loaned the money. How did she end up dead? What happened there? Well, the problem with being a loan shark is uh, you're, in most cases, using somebody else's money. You're, you're the middle person, and uh, you, are, you have a job to do, and your job is to loan money at, at very usurious or high interest rates. Um, if you can't get that money back, make a profit for whoever provided you with the money in the first place is no different than drug trafficking or any other type of crime. Someone's going to uh, uh, come after you and they're going to say, hey, where's my money? So unless you happen to have your own resources, um, you're in debt probably to somebody from the, the moment you, you start as a loan shark. And uh, again, with respect to this woman, uh, like I say, the, the the years have passed, but generally speaking, that's what would happen to a loan shark. They couldn't repay their own debts. So the loan sharks take money. They borrow money from organized crime. They then lend it, and the lender doesn't pay them back, and they're killed. Yeah, and I and presume – what right. I, I remember my, my supervisor at Oxford uh, is uh, a, a genius of a guy. He's a, one of the world's experts on organized crime. He did field work uh, in Sicily and Palermo on the Sicilian mafia. Right. And in fact, received death threats on it. And at some point, he'll come and join us on the podcast. But he talks about the dance of the corpses. And that is how a corpse is laid out sends a signal to the market. And I presume the same thing with this loan shark was done. She was placed where all the other loan sharks and all the other gambling indebted people would make sure they understood what was happening. Well, I think what's clear is that uh, if a loan shark is killed in circumstances like this, it is a strong signal to anyone else that's in that business. You better repay your debts. And we see that more often in, in the drug world. Everyone's familiar with drug trafficking. It's, it's, we find it in virtually every country. So uh, people can relate to that. And it's really the same thing because criminality, uh, the, the, the methods are, are very similar depending on what the commodity is. Uh, the commodity is almost irrelevant in this. We're going to get into a very sordid, uh, dirty, and dangerous tale about casinos and about the international money laundering that's going on in casinos around the world. We've seen – you're going to tell us one story about the investigations that you've been doing, but I want to um, emphasize to our listeners that this is seen in South Korea and in Japan and Cambodia and Burma and Australia and many other countries around the world. Right. But tell us – what you did in terms of the investigation of the casinos in British Columbia and Western Canada. Right. 
Well, for me, it all started very innocently. Uh, I'm no longer associated with government. I'm a consultant. I'm at home, basically, in my home office. And, and you, were, sorry, when you say government, you're being very modest here. You were a senior policeman, one of the most senior policemen in Canada. You were a commissioner, associate commissioner for the RCMP, which right, is massive. Right, that's right. I, I was a deputy commissioner of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is Canada's federal police. FBI for American listeners. The equivalent of the FBI Secret Service and a number of different uh, U.S. agencies. Awesome, Peter. And, and sorry, to, sorry to do this, Peter. I just didn't want it, you, any yeah. listener to think that I was interviewing a stuffy bureaucrat <laughs> who spent his time in the office, you know, polishing his teacup collection. No, you are uh, a serious guy. Yeah quite, the, yeah, quite the opposite. I've kept pretty busy in my life. I'm also a lawyer and uh, do a few other things. Uh, but most recently, I've been practicing law and doing consulting in the area of money laundering. And uh, as I say, I got a call from our attorney general here in this province, which is very similar to an attorney general in a state or somewhere else, um, who said, you know, we've got an issue with uh, money laundering allegedly in our casinos. Would you take a look at it? So what I did is conducted a review of what was taking place in the casinos. It wasn't an investigation as such. I had no special powers. I wasn't a police officer. I didn't have subpoena powers or anything like that. What I had is my uh, ability to talk to people, hopefully, and uh, uh, power of suasion, uh, you know, what's going on. So uh, I did have a team with me, a small team, and we got to work. Over the course of about six months, we attempted to find out what's been going on in, in the casinos. And we're actually quite surprised by what we saw, but also essentially uh, the inability of government to resolve what had taken place over a decade. Right. What, what did you see uh, in, these, in these casinos? What was happening here in the casinos uh, was people were literally entering the casinos with boxes and bags of cash. What? We're, have boxes and bags of cash and it's all on video cash. and generally speaking the cash was in $20 denominations whether it's uh, generally speaking Canadian but it could be American uh, money um, and uh, they were going to the teller cages in either the VIP room or the regular gaming uh, cage and uh, turning that money into chips and gambling sometimes they would lose the money other times they would cash out um, and uh, so the real issue was, what was the source of that money? What was happening? Why were these people walking in with literally boxes? And this wasn't just once in a while. It was happening regularly. Plus, the casinos, because they do have a lot of surveillance and cameras and so forth, they could see that uh, money exchanges were taking place very close to the casinos, outside, near restaurants, and so forth. People would exchange bags and one person would come in with that bag and, and do as I just said. So, Sorry, uh, what? So, Peter, Peter, rewind that scene for me and the listeners. Out, just outside the casino, yes, right. in the parking lot. That's right, yes. People oh, are meeting. Yeah. Yeah. John Smith or whoever is handing Gene, uh, you know, Vijay Raja or Singh or right. Rogers or Lee or whoever – a bag of cash Correct. or a box of cash, and then they're walking in. Correct. And all of this is being caught on video surveillance. This is caught on video, and oftentimes there are also videos of people parking in the parking lot at the casino, um, at a, one of these above-ground parking areas, which is, again, on, on surveillance, and you can follow the person as they take the box of cash out of the trunk <laughs> of their vehicle, uh, and they're walking uh, down the hallway, uh, the breezeway into the uh, casino and so forth. So it and was very is, open and taking place, and it was taking place over a matter of years. 
I was just going to say, you, you, you're, you're talking about years, almost a decade. So it's not like, hey, we had a bad weekend. A whole Correct. bunch of guys did something on things. It was like a whole day, week, month, years Correct. that went Correct. on. It, How it much... became a regular event. And uh, at the same time, the casinos were getting larger, um, busier. And they uh, were. the volume of cash was increasing exponentially in at least one of them uh, in this community of Richmond, which I described earlier, but others were also seeing increases. And how much cash are we talking about? Hundreds of thousands, millions? Oh yeah, we're definitely into the millions in terms of the cash that's coming in. Now, a, a particular load of cash might be something like $100,000. Um, it could be various different sums, uh, or it could be $200,000. Uh, that, that's almost irrelevant, whatever you can fit into a box or into a bag. Sorry, Peter, I meant in total, but you're telling me that people were walking in with $200,000 in cash and no one said anything over 10 years? <laughs> That's yeah, well, I, I shouldn't say no one said anything, but as we went through the review, it was very clear that you had different agencies and different parties responsible for doing things, but there seemed to have been a breakdown in that nothing ultimately happened to stop this until you know, quite a, quite a ways down the road, so to speak. Until you blew the whistle. But let, let's get to that in one second, Peter. Um, in total, how much cash is, it, and it's an estimate, obviously, but how much cash would you think went in this cycle? Yeah, we really don't know. Um, and I was not asked to try to uh, find out the quantum of it. But what, what I can say is that because of the way casinos are structured in mm. this province and in a few of the provinces in Canada. It's quite different than what we're familiar with in the United States, for example. In the United right. States, each of the casino companies is their own company. Uh, they live in, and die, basically, on their profit and loss statement. In Canada, it's different. Government essentially runs the casinos and they contract with service providers. So it's very lucrative for government. Government gets a lot of money out of the casinos and they use that money for social uh, programs and so forth. So it, it, it's, it's, it's an attractive business for government to be in. They contract with uh, established casino operators to run the casinos, but they, their take, so to speak, it's much, much greater percent, percentage-wise than what you would see in the casinos in the United States. The U.S. federal government and the U.S. state governments do not make as much off well, the Well, look, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a Las Vegas insider <laughs> recounting that over 10 years, people were walking in with bags of cash and nobody was doing anything about it. Um, well, all actually, right. So, for, so, for, yeah, so for our list, listeners, yep. we haven't got an exact ballpark figure, but we can certainly say we're now after 10 years of $200,000 shipments coming in. We're, we're talking somewhere in the hundreds of millions. Yeah, yes, uh, no doubt about that. Um, okay. in, in fact, the casinos in this province bring in approximately, casinos and lotteries bring in about a billion dollars a year in total to the government. That's and uh, that's after expenses, which is a lot of money. Because if you look at uh, Las Vegas, if you look at Nevada, the state government in Nevada makes about eight hundred million U.S. per year off the casinos in terms of taxes. Right. So we're talking almost the equivalent in this province, which is much smaller in terms of its casino industry than Nevada and Las Vegas and Reno. So it's a lot of money. And, and some of it, a, a fair chunk of it, 
but we're not sure how much because I wasn't your, your remit is, is in these weird dealings in cars and bags of cash and stuff. Now I interrupted you a, a moment ago, Peter, I'm sorry about that. You were going to say a, a story about a Las Vegas insider. You're going to blow the lid off Las Vegas. Were you? <laughs> no, I was uh, simply going to say that um, we, we don't know what percentage of the, the total take in the casinos was from a, a dirty source such as this. I was also going to, point out that lots of reports were filed through the years. The regulator uh, was receiving reports. The, uh, the lottery corporation that runs casinos, they were filing lots of reports. But most importantly, the casino saw what was taking place and the tellers were dutifully recording large cash transactions, suspicious transactions, and so forth. It's just that nothing seemed to get done. No one was up the ladder was doing anything. Well, this is part of the reason why we're, we're doing this series, Corruption as the Norm, when there's an industry which a significant chunk of it, the corruption simply becomes normal. Let's talk about, before we, again we get into the whole corruption issue and what people did and didn't do, let's, let's talk about what was driving this process because there's a whole bunch of really massive, big international catalysts for this cash flow into... British Columbia casinos and Australian casinos and South Korean and Japanese and casinos around the world. Please um, tell us, Peter, about what is going on with communist, Chinese communist officials and their problems in terms of getting cash out of their country. Yeah, well, what we saw, um, actually, we were slow to see in some ways what, was, what others were already recognizing. Uh, a professor in Australia by the name of John Langdale, who um, is at Macquarie University, an Asian crime expert. Uh, John Langdale uh, was talking to an audience in, I believe, Sydney, Australia, and he talked about the Vancouver model. And I happened upon a PowerPoint presentation just online in my own open source research by John Langdale, and he's talking about this Vancouver model. And I said to myself, what Vancouver is he talking about? Well, it must he, be another Vancouver. It can't be the one that I was a policeman in. And here we are known around the world as, hey, that, you want right. a model of corruption? Come to my hometown. Yeah, that's that right. And, you feel uh, great. Right. John Langdale had seen from his vantage point what was taking place. And it was a very interesting relationship between money leaving China and money entering or money being used in Canada for a particular purpose. So I can describe what he saw because, of course, it was of great interest. And it sort of confirmed what some people here had said many years earlier in the regulatory agency, but really no one had listened to them. Uh, well, they didn't listen sufficiently to these folks. And uh, in some ways, they were dismissed. Um, their concerns were dismissed. They actually were dismissed as well. So it's, it's a long, sorted wow. story. It is. But, and we're going to get to that yeah. section in a second. Sure. But, 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 but what is going on? And by the way, I'll add some of my students, my doctoral students' research, which right. I think may uh, play into this. But, but what, is, what is going on in communist China? China, uh, the, the PRC has currency uh, rules. You can only take a certain amount of currency out of the country yes. per year, approximately 50,000 U.S. dollars. Now, there was a time that uh, the, the rules were relatively lax, or at least there was a lot of flexibility. And so if people wanted to move money out of China into a quote, quote, safe haven, or if they wanted to invest 
somewhere in the in the Western world. They had to get their money out, but they had to do it through friends, through their companies, uh, any number of different ways, uh, spirited out through Hong Kong, so forth. Uh, but 50,000 US doesn't take you very far when it comes to a um, um, housing market, such as we have here in Vancouver, where you can't find a house for less than about a million dollars. Yeah, absolutely. Like, cheapest house. So what? So, so you were seeing people trying to find innovative ways of getting money out of China. Now, this was not necessarily dirty money. It could be very legitimate money. It could be entrepreneurs who had their, their money and they wanted to invest it abroad. So what they would do was engage with what are referred to as underground bankers or hawalas, informal remittance dealers. And um, people, those dealers, those hawalas would have a relationship with somebody, an equivalent person, a colleague in Canada. And between the two of them, the money would move. And I can describe what we believe was taking place in terms of that movement. More recently, however, with the current administration in China, President Xi, they've really cracked down on people moving money out of the country. It's become a real issue. So we're not seeing that same outflow, at least I'm not aware of that same outflow certainly not to us here in Canada, but who knows? Um, so to, to continue on with the story, um, Professor Langdale recognized that informal remittance uh, dealers in China were moving this money to colleagues in Richmond and in Canada, uh, but the money itself doesn't physically move. It's really a matter of an email, a phone call between the two colleagues uh, the client in China would deliver, let's say, 100000 equivalent of $100,000 to the informal remittancer. The informal remittancer would say, I have $100,000 from client A, would call or email his colleague in Canada. The colleague in Canada would say, send Mr. A over. When he arrives here, I'll give him $100,000 in Canadian cash or the equivalent. And that's what would happen. The individual would fly over would arrive, there would be a meeting, cash would be turned over. Now, what was happening is that the cash that was being turned over was oftentimes the proceeds of drug trafficking here in Canada or money that was being laundered through Vancouver. And there's even suggestions that cartel money from Mexico and from other sources was being laundered. So that money was being turned over to these people, oftentimes high rollers who would then, in some cases, gamble and do other things with the money. Um, so you've got people who may well be very legitimate and have legitimate cash in China. They're able to get their money out of the country. If I can interject yep. there, because um, I have a number of Taiwanese um, doctoral students uh, who are brilliant. It, it, you know, anyone who needs to do research into the communist China, go find some Taiwanese because they speak vernacular Mandarin, obviously, and they understand right. experimentally and emotionally uh, the system, and we're looking at sports gambling, um, right. and is we did um, we did work on the inside the Chinese internet, which of course, as all our listeners know, is a massive firewall around China's internet, and we spent uh, a fair amount of time over a number of months punching in, um, you know, regular neutral terms like the name of a Chinese actress, and that would come up seventy million hits in one day. And then would punch in human rights abuses or Tiananmen Square um, protests or a massacre or whatever, zero. 
I mean, the Chinese authorities have such control on the internet. And then we you punch in the term, and I've forgotten just at the moment, the Mandarin term for illegal sports gambling. And bingo, we'd have 11 to 12 million high, um, hits every day. So the question, obviously, is why the heck are the communists tolerating what is clearly an illegal sports gambling? And what we were able to determine was that there was a marriage between what is called the Red Mafia, and that is corrupt communist officials, and the Black Mafia, who are the triads. And they form an alliance. And the Red Mafia says to the triad guys, that's the organized crime of China, okay, you can do your casinos, you can do your development, you, know, you can do all your corruption, you can toxify baby formula, all this kind of nonsense that's going on there. But we want your help in getting our cash out. And the sports gambling networks were their way of getting the illicit money out. And so it sounds exactly what um, you discovered with his casinos. Yeah, it, it could well be. Obviously, I don't know what's taking place in China, and I don't know, mm. and I don't think we know collectively what the source of funds or the source of wealth was for a lot of these people in China who were moving their money out. Uh, but you were, you did see that some of the cash that they were receiving in Vancouver was coming from drug shipments and drug supplies. Yeah, and I wanted to confirm, obviously, what Professor Langdale was saying and, you know, what we believed was taking place. Um, and I was able to do that through the federal police here, through the RCMP. They did have active investigations underway. And you, you commented earlier that all this stopped with my review. And I have to be very clear on that. It, it didn't just stop because of me. Um, the, in about 2015, the police sort of re-entered the casinos and started looking at this problem. Up to that point, for a whole lot of reasons, we weren't seeing much police action involving money laundering in the casinos. But they arrived back around 2015. There were a couple of significant investigations underway. And when the police came back on the scene, so to speak, um, you saw a lot of changes taking place. So definitely the, the dirty money started to decline. It didn't go away. So I don't by any means take credit for that. Uh, however, the police were able to confirm to me that this circuitous informal banking system was taking place. And it gets a lot more complex. And I've outlined that in a chart and so forth in, the, in my dirty money reports. But uh, you could very well, these two colleagues that we talked about, the one in China and the one in Canada could be part of a drug trafficking network themselves. So that in fact, you know, the question that's always left is, well, how does the individual in China, the informal remittance banker in China get repaid for the money that has been given away in Canada? Uh, and, uh, or how does a person in Canada get the money from China? You know, whichever way you want to look at it, there could very well be a third party involved. Uh, and it, it could very well be that the money that was given by the client in China to the banker is then sent to a third country to purchase drugs, and those drugs are then shipped into Canada or the United States. So this can be a whoa, lot. Whoa, whoa, whoa! This could be a lot whoa. more complicated than just two bankers moving money. Yeah, my the steam just went out of my my head. Okay, let, let me just review because. Um, uh, it sounded a little academic there. Yeah. <laughs> what we're talking about is a pile of cash that is made over in China that could be invested in the Sonola drug cartel or a drug shipment or whatever right. in Mexico that then right. comes into Canada right. 
handed to some guy in a parking lot as they're being videotaped. He walks in, plays for a couple of hours in a casino, and then walks out, and the cash is laundered. Uh, yes and no. Uh, essentially, you've got a person in China who has received $100,000 from the client. What is that person going to do with the $100,000? And you've got a person in Canada who's given $100,000 to that same client. So somehow there has to be um, a, um, an, an accounting, there has to be a settling of the books. And in the normal banking industry, that takes place very quickly and it takes place electronically and so forth. But in the informal system, what could happen is that $100,000 that has been received in China could be sent. The money could be sent to a third country to purchase a product, whatever that might be. Right. And I'm suggesting it could be drugs. And then, yes, as you say, those drugs are moved to either Canada or to, it could be to a fourth location. We're talking transnational organized crime. We're not talking about Declan and Peter involved in a trafficking operation together. This is yeah. big stuff. This and is big could, stuff. Right. And, and now let's make that turn because I think our listeners are just still stunned that for close to a decade, there was, if not every night, certainly regular transactions being caught on video, not people, hey, I happen to see two guys with bags of cash, but on video at a government-run casino, people are walking hand, you know, with bags of cash in. The tellers are doing the right thing. In many cases, the tellers are right. saying, hey, this is a suspicious activity report. Right. And it goes up the chain. What the heck was going on? Right. Well, we know that literally thousands of reports were going to our National Financial Intelligence Unit, FinTrack, which is okay. uh, very well established, much like FinCEN in the United States and Austrac in Australia. It's a financial intelligence unit that receives these reports. They've got really good people working there. They've got good software systems. Let me just uh, cut to the chase. Did they actually do anything? The net result is we didn't see any real product in terms of the police. But you see, it's not only the intelligence people. They also they have to move this intelligence out to the law enforcement agencies. So the question is, did they move intelligence to the law enforcement agencies? And did the law enforcement people not have the capacity to deal with it? Or what okay you know, let, let me just go through the list let me go through the the, the laundry list here um so fintrack for for whatever reason and we can get explore that didn't do anything what about the provincial government they're legislating they're looking after the casino did they effectively do anything pre-2015 right so the provincial government has had a regulator in place for many years and again mm. good people uh, i what i did not see what we would refer to as overt hard corruption uh, we use but the before term we corruption. get into that, before we get into that, right? Did they actually do anything? At the end of the day, uh, they didn't use the powers that they had, or they didn't have sufficient powers in the first place. Okay, so the police eventually, as they always seem to do, the police are kind of the the dustmen, as we say in the UK, have to clean ways. up the mess yeah. of things. FinTrack, the guys that are supposed to be doing that, they collect lots of reports, don't do anything. The tellers do what they do. Nobody at the casino management seems to have done anything for years, or, or did they? Well, the casino people are contracted to this crown agency right. uh, that is responsible for gaming. So the, the casinos are filing the reports. In most cases, they're filing the reports that they have to. And those reports go up to the crown agency, and the crown agency sends them to FinTrack. 
So these, this flow of paper is taking place and the casino operators are quick to point out, Hey, we filed all the, all the reports. Um, and so everyone I mean, is- hey, you know, let alone having loan sharks on their floor, somebody, you know, one of them who ends up murdered by the organized crime, well, let we, alone we had, catching on video, right, all this right, thing. All right. So, right. so I think our listeners are getting this, the sense here <laughs> and thanks. Let's talk, if you don't mind, one, it, you, you have a lovely description of the difference between hard and soft corruption. Please explain that to us. What is the difference? Right. There? So. Hard corruption, I would describe as bribery. Uh, I am giving you money uh, and you give me something in return. That That's the hard corruption. And it's it's covered in criminal law. We have right. a criminal code. Every U.S. state has a criminal code. Countries have. So bribery is very clear. Um, and uh, but, you know, what we tend to notice in a lot of these things is a lot of people will do what they believe is the right thing or they will. Uh, they will persuade themselves that everything is fine one way or the other. And they go on doing business the way business has always been done. Yes. Um, at the end of the day, uh, governments were so attracted to the money here that was coming from casinos that the red flags were going off, but no one was really paying much attention to it. So you could describe that as a soft form of corruption in that, the money was so good, people weren't really looking at the source the way they should be. And now I, I think upon reflection, we have a public inquiry underway and people are looking at this and they're saying, well, why didn't regulators do more? Why didn't compliance people do more? Why did the police not do more? Uh, but you can't, at least in my review, I could not point my finger at any one person who accepted dirty cash. That wasn't my role. It was really a matter of how was this a systemic breakdown, which is really what it was. It was a systemic breakdown. Well, look, I mean, I, again, my, I'm just speaking for our listeners here, most of whom are just going to be jumping up and down saying, just a second, you have a taxpayer set of establishment that were essentially taking at least hundreds of millions of dollars in either drug money or criminal activity in some kind or offshore offloading of communist Chinese cash. And no one found it convenient to do anything, despite thousands of suspicious activity reports and dozens of video camera stuff because it just wasn't, it was convenient for everyone to look the other way. Well, it it was convenient probably for some people to look the other way, but I would also say it's also a reflection of bureaucracy in that everyone is doing their job and nobody seemed to take the whole, look at the whole picture and say, you know, we have to take the bull by the horns and deal with this. So uh, everyone can say, well, we did this but it didn't really solve the problem. And, and now we're having a commission of inquiry. And, and this is a moment where two Canadians will now tell each other a joke, um, which I hope non-Canadians will find equally funny. But there's a, there's a famous Canadian joke that goes around. There's a, there's a world fair about um, writing a book about an elephant. And the French show up on day one and they say, well, you know, we have done the sex life of the elephants. <laughs> Jolly good. Yes, yes, yes. And the Germans show up and go, yes, we have found out how to put efficiency, business efficiency in the life of the elephant. Ah, yes, jolly good, right, excellent, thanks. And the Americans come on and say, excuse me to all American listeners, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to find the profit motivation and uh, money-making uh, financial uh, working of elephants. Ah, oh, great, excellent. And finally, the Canadians come in and they say, well, we're going to do a federal 
provincial legislative review of the legal inequities and the bilingualism in elephants. Like, what the heck? After decades of non-action, all we've got is a commission of inquiry? Yeah, I think, I think what happened as a result of the uh, reviews that I did, as well as work done by other people, uh, the public here in this province was quite upset by what they saw, but probably more no. so. There was a lot of really good journalism that had been done over the years. And uh, the media, at least a couple of media outlets, were really pushing this issue in recent years. So a- after a while, the public started to know what is money laundering. They, they all of a sudden got it. And they also understood that there's a real downside to money laundering, which we haven't discussed yet. And that really is the cost of what happens to people that are on drugs, right? And we have a lot of opioid deaths, for example, here in this province. So people were starting to connect money laundering with the thousand plus deaths that we have per year from opioid addiction in, in this province alone. And so there was this groundswell saying something has to be done. So in addition to my recommendations and so forth, um, I, I think the government decided, well, we better hold a public inquiry so that, you know, we can air all of this. And that's what's taking place right now. And we haven't, but hang on a second, we haven't even talked about the sky high real estate market. So normular, regular Declan Hill type, I can't even dream of buying a house in Vancouver or anywhere within an hour or two hour drive. Uh, you know, anyone with a young family who'd be priced out of it because there's so much cash of whose origins we know not where it comes from buying real estate there. So, Peter, after a multi-year investigation review of the work by you, after all this work, what is your biggest fear going forward in this issue? Right. So organized crime looks at cash intense agencies in order to place the dirty cash. And casinos are just one example of a cash based industry. Um, so obviously, if you tighten things up in casinos, organized crime is not going to say, oh, I, we don't like that. They're just simply going to move somewhere else. So whether it's money service businesses, cryptocurrency, uh, real estate, luxury cars, you name it. Uh, they'll go somewhere else. And they're probably there right now. Um, so that's one concern is where is the next problem going to surface? Um, and also with casinos, you better solve the problem or else it's just going to resurface in another decade and we'll be back having this type of a conversation. Maybe not me, but someone else will be having that conversation with you. No, but but Peter, isn't isn't one way we can do this is to make somebody do the perp walk? make somebody somewhere do that perp walk saying, hey, listen, you, you help launder hundreds of millions of dollars through a government-regulated system. You got to serve some time and send that as a message. Well, that is really the role of the uh, commission is to find fault, uh, which was not my, my role was simply to find out what was going on. It was not an investigation as much as a review. The inquiry can find fault with individuals. Uh, it remains to be seen whether they do uh, and to what degree. But we do run into, as we described, the Canadian thing that you've got a bureaucracy at various different levels and everybody is doing their job and some are doing it really well and some aren't doing it as well. But the pieces aren't working together. They're not coming together. And uh, you can point fingers at different people in different agencies and so forth. But was there actual overt corruption? I'm going to guess they're not going to find overt corruption. I think it's going to be this lackadaisical approach to the entire issue. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't uh, a priority at the time in terms of a whole of government approach. And that's what you need to solve this. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember I was in, in, a, in a dusty, dirty theater in Italy in a place called Reggio Emilia, where I help host an organized crime conference. And there was a man who risks his life fighting against the Nandrangata. Um, Antonio Nicaso um, brought him there. Antonio was a, a friend and colleague who's been on Crime Ways. I strongly urge the listeners, if you haven't heard Antonio's talk about the violent reach of the Nandrangata to do so. But I remember this Italian prosecutor who was walking around, by the way, with 12, 15 bodyguards, 24, 7, 365, because he was living, you know, he was literally a dead man walking, um, just waiting for that, that bullet from these guys. And he said, there's no gray area. You're either in them, you're either against the mafia or you're working with them. And it sounds, unfortunately, using his paradigm, that a whole bunch of Canadian government and a whole bunch of provincial people and a whole bunch of people who should have known better didn't take that stand and said, we've got to stop, we've got to do better. Yeah, there's no question. A lot of people were definitely in the gray area. Um, mm. And, you know, you, you bring up a really good issue. Um, and, and maybe this is the bigger problem. You, you ask me, what do you worry about? Well, if, if we were a developing world country, I'd be really worried that there's, there is a tipping point in countries when all of a sudden, you know, organized crime takes over. Uh, they're running the country. And we've seen some pretty blatant examples Absolutely. of that yes. in, yep. in the developing world. And it's tragic when, when you see the outcome of it. I don't see that happening in Canada. I don't see that happening in the United States. So we, we don't seem to worry about that extreme. But we always have to be aware that um, governments can't just drop their, their guard, so to speak, because people will fill those gaps. And what you don't want is overt corruption to get started because then, you know, if the people at the top accept money, the people at the bottom are accepting money. And the next thing you know, it's this vicious, in, in, insidious uh, cycle that everybody becomes corrupt. We're nowhere near that here. Like I say, we, we're not seeing that overt corruption, but we are seeing this bureaucratic uh, intransigence or inability to solve the problem. So hopefully or, or after simply, this inquiry, hey, yeah. <laughs> I did my job. I did right. that. I did that. Right. I filed that piece of paper. The right. problem's still going on. A lot of finger pointing. So Peter, what should you be doing if you're an investigator when you're looking at these kind of issues? The, the only reason money laundering is of importance is really from an enforcement perspective that it is a good way to get at organized crime. And it's really the United States that started this idea of follow the money. And Al Capone, yes. The, the whole world has followed that. Yes, Al Capone was a good example. And in the modern years, you know, the war on drugs and so forth, the approach was, well, we can chase after organized criminals or criminals as, as much as we want, but if we follow their money, Money is the Achilles heel of organized crime. Organized crime only does what it does for profit, for money. That's the reason. And, and that's the case with most criminal activity because other than public order offenses and other than sexual offenses, it's about making money. So that's what organized crime is all about. So get at their money. That's their Achilles heel. And the U.S. has done a great job of it, but other countries now are on board. Follow the money and dismantle organized crime. That's the theory. And that's why we're really concerned about money laundering. It's not because money laundering happens to be criminalized or so forth. It's because money laundering is the back office of organized crime. Organized no different crime. than casinos have a back office. Money laundering is the back office of organized crime. That's why it's important. 
Peter, thank you, first of all, for your work. Uh, you've been very modest throughout this. You really took an enormous amount of heat from your quote review. I will call it an investigation. You did something that, that took an enormous amount of courage and guts. So I really want to thank, thank you. you for that. Thank and you. I want to thank you as well for coming on CrimeWise, Peter. I really hope pleasure. that you will come back. No, I'm a great admirer of your work, Declan. So thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Awesome, Peter. Thanks again. Cheers. Hey, it's Declan here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Crime Waves. It's an honor that you would spend your time with us. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, please do the usual thing and like and subscribe us on social media. Thank you. It's massively appreciated.